Hello, you're listening to Search for Truth. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Brian, your Bible teacher, brings you the start of a new series of studies this week. And uh, the most important event is, which is covered by New Testament writers uh, and some in the Old Testament, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Brian's called this group of studies or radio programs uh, Nothing But Christ Crucified. And his readings are mainly from the first letter to the Christians at Corinth. It's uh, found in the New Testament, of course, 1 Corinthians. So let's go to Brian now for our first talk. Thanks, John. The intellectual scoffers called the Apostle Paul a babbler. The word they used literally meant a seat picker, conjuring up the picture of someone who goes around the rubbish bins scraping together a meal from everyone else's leftovers. Their insinuation was that Paul plagiarised or stole other people's ideas and presented them as his own. In stark contrast to that put-down, Paul's message borrowed nothing from the wisdom of this world's elite. It wasn't the case that he wasn't capable of the same eloquence as others. Far from it. Jewish authorities and Roman governors acknowledged he'd advanced in knowledge and had great learning. But Paul had made a conscious decision before coming to Corinth that he wouldn't employ the rhetoric of the day nor the kind of oratory that he was capable of. He would have been quite at home in the Greek world where those who became practised in the art of public debate were treated like demigods from the 5th century BC onwards. They were the movie stars as it were of that time. Statues were erected in honour of these strolling sophists who performed to great applause. Although he probably had the ability to mix it with the best of them, Paul chose not to, for the reason that the Christian message of a crucified Messiah was incompatible with a style of communicating which exalted human egos. Religious history does tell of some early advocates of Christianity who were golden-tongued and were regarded as Christian sophists. The danger in this is palpable, as we dip into the first Bible letter Paul wrote to the local church of God at Corinth. For here, according to reports Paul has received, was a divided church. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptised in my name. Now, I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised any other. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The spirit of the age, the prevailing culture, can so easily affect us as Christians. It seems clearly indicated here by these words we've just read that sections of the church were aligning themselves with one or other Christian leader, very likely comparing them based on their speaking skills. 
After all, this was exactly what the world around them was doing in the wider society. To take one of the names mentioned, that of Apollos, he was from Alexandria, with its reputation for learning, and what we know of him was that he was, personally, a very powerful speaker. It's not without significance, surely, that Paul makes repeated reference to Apollos. From the little we know of Apollos, from reading in the book of Acts, we find he was a humble man. So it's not likely that Apollos was intentionally trying to outshine Paul or draw away a personal following or try to be competitive in any way. But in the cultural context of Corinthian Christianity, it was hard for those in the church not to make comparisons and not to express preferences. Also, Paul's mention of the fact that he's baptised hardly anyone there seems to invite the implication that some in the church were considering it a big deal if such and such a person had been the one to baptise them. Paul's so quick to disassociate himself from this wrong thinking that he initially forgets a few persons that he had in fact baptised. Which is interesting, as we reflect on the Bible, and so Paul's two letters to Corinth, as having been inspired or God-breathed. This slip of the memory, which Paul corrects a couple of verses later, is illuminating in that it's consistent with a divine superintendence of the human writer's own choice of the words he used, rather than suggesting anything more like a mechanical dictation process. Paul then makes a strong statement that God had not sent him to baptise, but to preach the gospel. That's a very telling distinction, and one I'd like to draw your attention to. One of the most regular issues that crops up in correspondence is the claim that baptism, even Christian believers' baptism, is a necessary part of our salvation from the penalty of our sins. If I was dealing specifically with that issue here, there are many biblical texts I would want to comment on to make it quite clear that someone who repents of sin and truly believes on the Lord Jesus as his or her personal saviour, is forgiven and heaven-bound, regardless of whether or not they fulfil the Lord's further instruction to be baptised. That's not to downplay the importance of keeping any command of the Lord. Far from it. It's just following the Bible's teaching in saying that the instruction for a believer to be baptised is not a command that leads to salvation from sin's penalty. But just staying on message here with the first chapter of Corinthians and the last verse we read, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. This remarkably effective gospel preacher was not sent to baptise. The good news of how to be right with God and to be sure of all our sins being forgiven is deliberately spoken of here by Paul as separate from and distinct from a believer's baptism by immersion in water, which God certainly does intend should take place later as a public sign that one is a follower of Christ, one who is already by then eternally saved from the penalty of his or her sins. Now, there's something else before we're finished with that same verse, which is verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we've seen, Paul's been very concerned about the divided state of some, at least, of the believers in the local church at Corinth. 
there are reasonable grounds for understanding, as we've seen, that part of that division, at least, was the result of those in the church favouring one speaker's communication style and delivery over that of others. Paul deliberately chose to speak in such a way that he was not in danger of encouraging this tendency. He affirms that God had sent him to preach the good news message of Christianity, albeit not in cleverness of speech. If he should use cleverness of speech, there was a worse consequence than fueling the divided state of the Corinthians. There was, for Paul, the unthinkable potential prospect of rendering the cross of Christ empty of power. Strictly speaking, the expression in cleverness of speech is more literally in wisdom of word, or in wisdom of discourse, or in wisdom of speaking style. The very next verse says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The expression, the word of the cross, stands in stark contrast to the wisdom of word. There is indeed a reasoning surrounding the cross. It's the most meaningful event in history, but it's not a worldly wise kind of reasoning. That's why it's singularly not appropriate, according to Paul, to use clever speech, the kind which aims to outsmart others, if the topic under debate or for declaration is the cross of Christ. Paul was all too conscious, it seems, that some of the Corinthians viewed their Christianity as an alternative wisdom, an alternative to that put on show by the strolling philosophers of the then Hellenistic world. Paul is at pains here to disabuse them of that idea, not only because it was dividing opinions within the church, but far more importantly, this was wholly foreign in character to the cross of Christ. In fact, we'll see when we continue next time that Paul reasons that the cross of Christ is God's foolishness and that the highest revealed truth about God is cross-centred. It's precisely in this way that God has destroyed the wisdom of this world. But let's close this time by noting what Paul says at the beginning of the second chapter. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This continues his point on his preferred style of gospel preaching, the gospel which he describes there as being the testimony of God. As for its content, it's the cross of Christ, and the way in which it should be preached is in the power of the Spirit. This is Paul's Trinitarian formulation of the message he lived to preach. And we conclude today with the point that he was determined to do nothing among the Corinthians other than Christ crucified. Of course, as we'll see, Paul spoke to them on many topics, such as their sanctification. But there's no contradiction, inasmuch as Paul had come to see everything through the cross of Christ. He's the example to every preacher and teacher to keep things centred on the cross, the central point of history.
As is our usual custom, we have a booklet available to accompany this uh, series. So if you'd like a copy, please write in and be sure to let us have your postal address. And ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. If you like, we can put you on our mailing list to receive new books as they come out. If you'd like that, let us know. And you can order by email or by post. Here are our contact details, so please make a note. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So, many thanks for the privilege of your company once again, and I hope you can join us next week for the next talk in this series. So until next week then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. Goodbye and may God richly bless you.